blessed songs. Mommy's here, Daddy's gone. Broken promises, gin and rye. All the mean and hurtful things that make baby Jesus cry. Hello and welcome to Movies with Gravy, a podcast where we discuss under-the-radar new releases and the films we believe inspired them. My name is Billy Ray Bruton and I'm your host and antagonist for the next however long we're here. Returning to the hallowed halls of Movies with Gravy is the screenwriter of the upcoming horror film Cobweb and the impending reboot-slash-sequel Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He's the anti-Max Landis in every conceivable way, Mr. Chris Thomas Devlin. Whoa, the nicest thing anyone has ever said about me. Thank you very much, Billy. I really appreciate that. Don't, doesn't everybody just sort of live to be the anti-Max Landis? Uh, yeah. I mean, whether consciously or subconsciously, I think it's a goal. It's a, um, it's a good lodestar to aim your personality. Um, so, you're not technically the first repeat guest we've ever had, because no. Drea and Clay have been on, but you are the first repeat guest to do the same format of an episode, so that's something. Yeah. Um, well, this was a last-minute um, uh, shake-up. It so, was. So uh, uh, if, this, if this sucks, I'm not taking any responsibility for it. But, um, you yeah. Were, you were very gracious. We had some scheduling snafus last minute. You were very gracious to step in and watch a movie. Uh, for us, uh, so I appreciate Truly that. Truly my pleasure. Um, and uh, you're still in New York. Mm-hmm, that's I think, true. I think the last time we talked, maybe the lockdown was a bit more extensive. Uh, how is it? How, how are things in the Big Apple these days? Uh, things, I believe, have loosened up for better or for worse. Um, every time another Cuomo um, accuser comes out, uh, restrictions get lifted a little bit or weed becomes legal. Um, uh, my lifestyle has not changed dramatically i did have my first i went to a a birthday party in the park last week that was really nice um to uh uh, see people there but um yeah uh i'm still basically uh apartment bound yeah yeah i well i'm certainly not apartment bound since i am at my friend's apartment in birmingham alabama i'm i'm apartment bound just not my apartment of course Um, i've been on a uh whirlwind tour of the the great american south How's that going? Um, you know, uh, it's my first time back in uh, Birmingham in about four years. So it's wow. it's really sort of mind-blowing how much the city has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, being in the South is being in the South. Whether you're one year removed or 20 years removed, it's sort of still got the same uh, thickness in the air. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way I would put that. Um, the last time we talked, uh, we knew absolutely nothing about uh, your upcoming uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre project. Now we know that it has a title. Uh, yeah. We know that it has uh, an old familiar character that is returning. Uh, we true. have we have far more info. Um, so uh, what can you tell us that will get you in trouble from the studios? Oh, I could tell you a lot that would get me in trouble. The thing is, I'm not going to tell you what's going to get me in trouble. Damn it, really. I, thought- I know, I know yeah. there's little Jedi mind tricks that you're playing, but here's the thing. We're on Zoom now, so I can see the sneaky little look in your eyes. <sighs> um, but yeah, uh, Sally is a returning character. It is apparently called um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Chainsaw is one word, and they yep. dropped the the. I had been every script that I think, uh, every script that I wrote had simply Chainsaw on the uh, the first page, but they they ignored that title suggestion. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be fun. 
Um, did you ever at any point thinking about just making it part of the Saw franchise? Uh, I I wish I had a clever answer here for you, Billy. Uh, no, no, it did not. That never once occurred to me. You did not. This is a, this is a heavy chainsaw week here on Movies with Gravy because uh, our next episode, we're chatting with, uh, we're doing, a, we're starting a new interview series where we talk with random folks. It's called Chewing the Fat. Hmm. And uh, our first guest is William Butler, who of course was in Leatherface, of Texas course. Chainsaw Massacre 3, uh, a film which I had not seen and probably, oh, 20 plus years and then watched it again the other night was you know what not a bad flick holds the hell up holds I the hell it. up it's it's yeah. a very different kind of texas chainsaw massacre film which mm -hmm. i like which i approve of yeah you know what i don't think i can i'll get in trouble for saying this i feel like uh our our movie has a lot of elements that could be traced to oh. um to uh leatherface it shares some dna shares yeah, some dna yes some dna shares some blood Oh, I see. See, I'm not clever enough to do that. My wordplay is not so good at, at 9 a.m. Uh, it's, yeah, 9 a.m. for you, 10 a.m. for me. That's, that's um, crazy how time works. Um, but today uh, we're here to talk about a very different kind of film from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, a film, yeah, I assume you knew about Jacob's Wife before I said, hey, let's talk about Jacob's Wife. I did indeed. Um, and so was it a film that you had been wanting to see or was it a film where you were like, meh? Uh, no, I definitely wanted to see it um, for a variety of reasons. Um, obviously, Barbara Crampton is uh, one of the most beloved actresses in the, the horror community. Um, and I watch anything that she's in. Also, I'm a fan of uh, one of the screenwriters, Kathy Charles. Uh, okay. She wrote a script. Uh, years ago called, that I read when I was an assistant called Kings of Maine about a young Stephen King um, oh. struggling to uh, make it as uh, make a career as a horror author and um, the genesis of him writing uh, Carrie. And then she also did um, the other Barbara Crampton produced um, flick Castle Freak, um, which oh. I thought was a, a very uh, strong, interesting, fun movie so um yeah this one was very much on my radar and so um for whatever reason i hadn't uh, uh taken the plunge just yet so this was a um a fantastic opportunity to do so yeah and you know and yeah barbara's just amazing and mm -hmm. uh so yeah i saw this film for south by southwest uh I, it was part of my onslaught of films that i saw for that festival and um yeah, well, you know what? We might as well just stop beating around the goddamn bush and talk about the film. Um, well, let's beat the bush. Let's. Oh yeah, let's beat the bush. Oh, I like that. Um, so uh, yeah. So before we do that, uh, in case folks have no idea what Jacob's wife is, in case they think it's some sort of Mormon drama, which is what I thought it was when I first saw the title. Yeah. Um, here is a clip from Jacob's wife. You know, and I am surprised that you wound up marrying Jacob. Whatever happened to the adventurous Anne? Oh, this is so tempting. I just can't do it to Jacob. Jacob's wife tells the story of repressed housewife Anne, played by Barbara Crampton, who lives a predictable, unfulfilled life as the wife of a preacher, Jacob, played by Larry Fessenden, one day, while engaging in a sinful act in an old warehouse, Anne is bitten by a vampire and her humdrum life begins to change quite drastically. Uh, that is a very condensed description of the film. 
uh, it is not the IMDb. I can't say words. I can't say words today. I M D B. Yes, you are. I wish I was drunk. I have no excuse. Um, but that is not the IMDb description, but uh, it felt appropriate without spoiling too much. But um, yeah, so Jacob's wife is uh, a very sort of classic tale of uh, marital discord and repressed feelings, and uh, but told through the lens of a vampire flick, which mm-hmm. is an interesting way to do that. Um, I agree. Uh, it, it, it was a passion project for Barbara. She'd been trying to get it made uh, for quite a while, a few years, I know. Um, and then, you know, she handed the script off to Travis Stevens, who was just like, you know, any excuse to basically, you know, make Barbara as awesome as possible, I'm going to take. Um, so I guess I'm curious with you to start out with, uh, do you think Barbara's investment in all that time and energy was worth it? I do. I really enjoyed this movie and I really enjoyed her performance immensely. Um, I'm just endlessly impressed with uh, uh, Miss Crampton Um, more than any of the other screen queens. I feel like she has embraced the mantle and uh, used it and taken it to her advantage and um, taken on much more of a uh, producer role and willed into existence these uh, roles that might not necessarily come her way otherwise, but they're just like really fun, interesting, nuanced. This one, especially, um, I think it gives her a lot of uh, uh, leeway or a lot of uh, runway, I should have said, to um, to really just kind of go nuts and flex a lot of muscles that perhaps I, I haven't really seen her being able to flex in a long time. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I thought it was great. It's nice seeing, it's nice seeing, because she's, you know, ever since You're Next, which was kind of like, that was the film that sort of brought her back into the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since then, she's she's typically just relegated to those really colorful supporting roles that pop up for a couple of scenes. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I'm sure she was a good name to have on a project to get it made. And so, you know, that's sort of been what she's been relegated to the last several years. And she's great in all those roles. Like she always brings something unique and interesting to those roles but it was so nice to get to see her in a film that allowed her to actually build a character from top to bottom because that's what actors like to do and you know the character roles are great but you just don't get to do that with those yeah she gets to play so many different shades of this character i mean she starts off off obviously as kind of the the meek submissive preacher's wife um only to uh, you know, become the the horror movie victim briefly, um, but she gets to play terrified, and then she, you know, becomes like the antihero, um, just a, a twisted, um, flamboyant, um, uh, just uh, vamp. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and the 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 makeup in this movie is incredible. Like, um, I mean, I, I I hope we can have a a cool ass Halloween this year. Cause I, I would really love to see some, uh, some, some young people in their uh, uh, white face makeup with the, the black burn marks all around the mouth and the, um, that really great dress that she was wearing. Um, yeah. There's just some really distinct looks going on in this movie. And I, I always appreciate an easy Halloween costume. Yeah. It, it was interesting. I, I really enjoyed seeing sort of the vampire 
mythology applied to sort of this very small Midwestern town. And uh, particularly, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure this has been done before. Surely that someone has used sort of vampires as an allegory for like marriage and, and things. I, I, surely that's been done, but maybe not. I don't know. I couldn't think of any films offhand that had yeah. done that before. I mean, it's. I mean, I had a little bit of trouble, uh, not so much trouble um, coming up with my list of three it too. movies. Um, it too. Not that, I mean, it's very, it's obviously a movie that very much wears its inspirations on its yes. sleeves in a very obvious way. And I, in a way that I appreciate, I mean, just, you know, it's, it's fun. I mean, obviously the look of the, the master vampire is, you know, um, a Barlow yep. or lock yep. uh, kind of look. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, um, the person kind of being invigorated or refining the flame in their life based on a, a supernatural uh, occurrence is a, is a genre staple. I mean, the thing I didn't I didn't mention this one, but um, uh, season of the witch, the George Romero movie, I think, yeah. kind of plays with a lot of the the same elements. Um, that's obviously witches as opposed to vampirism. But um, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was uh, you know really. Sp- really uh, uh smart the way they did this there's obviously like a um a, a queer subtext as well and that the master is uh played by the wonderful um uh bonnie bonnie aarons yes. um uh, and i think if memory serves we're, we're led to believe that the vampire is uh a man throughout a large portion of the movie only to be revealed to be a woman and yeah. i think the idea that uh Anne, Barbara Crampton's character, is in this um, really stale, boring, uh, heterosexual, patriarchal relationship, uh, only to be uh, have that interrupted by the presence of this mysterious uh, 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 woman who um, really makes her feel things that she's never felt before. I think that, um, you know, obviously that was uh, a theme that was being played around with. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, you know, it helps, you know, if you're Barbara Crampton to have Larry Fessenden as a sparring partner. And what I appreciate... By the way, I, I'm really happy that you're saying his name out loud because I always thought it was Larry Fezesden. And uh, I was about to say that quite a bit. And um, uh, thanks for uh, catching you're, me before You're welcome. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have corrected the record before it became the record. Yes, of um, course. But yeah, Larry Fessenden, you know, a terrific a terrific actor a terrific filmmaker in his own right and mm-hmm, um, of course it was so nice seeing them together because you know it's called jacob's wife and it is about the Anne character but they really do give the jacob character a lot of room for growth and sort of development too so i can definitely yeah. see why this would have been appealing role to him because they don't they don't sidetrack his character just to tell her story even though it is so very much Anne's story and, you know, they just have such great chemistry together. I'm sure they've been friends for a while. Like, you know, that you can just tell they have this sort of lived in relationship. And mm-hmm. that really, really adds to this film. Um, and yeah, well, they're, they're, they've worked together in your next already. Was there yes. another one? Um, um, I want to say yes. I want to say they've been in another film to get, wait, was Larry in your next? 
Yeah, he's the um the Oh right, he's the guy. guy. Yeah, he's the guy with the music playing. Duh. Yeah. I duh, mean, duh, they don't duh. share any scenes together. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure I'm pretty sure they've worked together. I do too. I mean, it's I should have done also. even the barest hint of research for this, but um yeah. Well, it was last uh, minute. Yes, we can exactly. we can excuse ourselves. Yeah. Um but, but yeah, he's fantastic in this. I mean, it's a role that easily could have been like stiflingly one note the overbearing Christian patriarchal husband as villain. Um, but uh, both the writing and his performance take the character in much more interesting places. Um, you know, I think everyone is expecting him to immediately turn on Anne when he yeah. catches her lapping up blood on the floor. Uh, but instead, he remains uh, devoted to his wife. Yeah. And, uh, you know, their dynamic shifts throughout the narrative. Um, but I mostly thought it was quite sweet. And the, yeah. the two of them have a sex scene that is at once repulsive and yet oddly endearing. And beautiful and the movie ends on this uh this note of ambiguity where they're kind of at a um um what's the word uh a, 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 a stalemate yeah. uh, you don't know whether they can they don't know whether they can trust each other um or whether love is going to continue to uh grow between them because Anne makes the decision not to try to find a cure for whatever's happening to her. She's in, instead embracing her um, new role as, uh, as a vamp. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned her earlier, but uh, I love the choice, like you said, I love the choice to make the master a woman. Mm-hmm. because there is something and and i i interviewed travis uh a, a couple of episodes ago i think episode 22 of the podcast we talked with him about the film and I, we're actually gonna put that interview at the end of this episode too just for folks cool. who will want a complete jacob's wife experience um but yeah he was talking about that and i love that decision because what it does is, is it sort of creates this when you have the, when you have one woman sort of saying to another woman hey your life kind of sucks. Why don't you come and have fun with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that was so interesting. Like that was such an interesting idea and the way they executed it, I thought was so beautiful. And um, I, I won't reveal what happens towards the end of the film, but uh, I also absolutely love the way we first see the vampire. Yeah. It's in the warehouse with uh, Barbara and um, uh Robert Russler, who was also great to see him show up in a film again. I don't think um, I'm familiar with him. He's uh, he's the best friend in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Two. Freddy's Revenge. Oh, of course. He was a he did a lot of films in the '80s, and I just haven't seen him in a lot lately. And uh, it was so nice seeing him in that little small role too. But the way we first see the vampire, that whole warehouse scene is executed so well. Yes, absolutely. And also the second time we see the vampire, I I just loved. Um, uh when barbara's at the window and she sees what kind of looks like the the scarecrow yes. in her back. i mean i have such an affection for um shots and horror movies i always think of the innocence where like the uh uh mysterious uh, uh scary whatever is just far away and yeah. like it's there's uh, your your mind's just trying to like pick up on the details but they're not quite there i always find yeah. that i don't know for whatever reason that's just something that really like uh, uh that's the goods for me yeah um, i agree with you I, I know exactly what you mean there's something really unsettling about this idea that uh the danger is so it's it's far away but it's also so goddamn close yeah um yeah exactly and you like i said the details aren't quite there and you're trying to like there's something it's sort of an uncanny valley situation and um yeah there's just this really fantastic sequence barbara's uh um 
at the window and uh, there's the vampire master, scarecrow, whatever, um, in her garden. And she's controlling uh, Anne like a marionette puppet and just making her go to town, yeah. masturbating, um, only to yeah. be interrupted by her, uh, her nerd of a husband. Um, yeah, I, I really just love the, the design of uh, the master. Yeah, absolutely. And th- just a, a, this is a connected tangent, but this would probably be horrifying to you. When I was a kid, I used to have this recurring nightmare where I would be laying in my bed and there would be something o- above me way up in the air. It was so small, you couldn't see it. And the whole nightmare was it slowly getting closer and closer to me. Mm-hmm. And it was the Green Goblin. <laughs> actually you just reminded me yeah i mean this kind of brings things full circle but a reoccurring nightmare i had was um uh leatherface who i only ever i had this dvd that i bought um that was just like all the best like kill scenes from classic horror movies uh-huh. um i wasn't allowed to you know buy the horror movies themselves but like somehow this like managed to slip by my parents so i only ever saw the um climactic sequence the, the end sequence of texas chainsaw massacre and that was enough to give me the reoccurring dream of me like being in my suburban neighborhood and Leatherface just a distance away, just like running towards me with a chainsaw. But it was like that scene in a, um, Monty Python's Holy Grail uh, where uh, John Cleese just keeps running towards the guards like over and over, but never getting yeah. any closer. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't thought about that in a long time, but yeah, that... Uh, that brings it all together. Well, I'm li- um, I like that we've turned it into a psychology session and talking yeah. about the psychology of dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, the, you mentioned it earlier that sort of the makeup effects and the, and the practical effects and Love you know, should say this is a goddamn bloody film. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it is bloody in that evil dead kind of way mm-hmm. where it is, it is, or you know, that Peter Jackson way of like so much blood. It it's it's ridiculous the amount of blood, and that's what I love about this film. And I think Travis is as a filmmaker is really good about about really embracing the absurdity of horror. Yeah, but also doing it in this almost in this very sort of realistic package, which I think he did with his first film, Girl on the Third Floor, too. Um, and, and in this film particularly, like there's just so much blood. I couldn't help but laugh my ass off, but you're still invested in the characters. It still doesn't make you, you know, sh- step away from the story at all. It's just, it, it go- they work together in tandem. Yeah. Um, I think that this does a really great job of, yes, exactly. It's, it's silly and fun while also being uh, gruesome and hard edged and still kind of heartfelt. I think it does a better job of, um, juggling these tones than say like another movie that we perhaps uh discussed uh in the past on this podcast um oh, which I, by the way once again yes. i really did like that movie but i mean that was my big problem was that um i wanted to be more invested uh than i was and i feel like this does a really great job of that the the, the practical effects are just i mean it's a movie that like it gradually it's definitely a comedy um but it doesn't it reveals itself to be a comedy gradually throughout the film when it starts it's very quiet and somber and has this very eerie almost sad uh tonal quality but as the body count racks up the the wackier it gets and yeah i think there's like moments of just like pure comedy like the, there's the scene with like the um when they're carrying the the body out in the bed sheet and they're interrupted by the little girl that I just thought was just so absurdly hilarious. Do you remember yeah, this? I okay. do. I do remember. Yeah. 
And that was, the, I mean, just credit where credit's due. That's a scene that was probably funny on the page, but the performance from the little girl herself, like really just took that to the next level. I thought that was, uh, that was very funny. But yeah, the gore effects, the practical effects are just fantastic. There's a, I, I really love the performance of, um, let me make sure I have her name right, uh, Naisha Bell as yeah. the uh, initial victim of the, the vampire where, uh, you know, the first act is very kind of centered around her disappearance in a way that I thought was interesting. And we can talk about that a little bit more in a bit, but um, like her, just her vampire performance, like the makeup is fantastic. It's, it's simple. It's not like reinventing the wheel, but it's just very effective and her uh, most likely because of the way that she's uh, um, uh, performing while in it. And she has, she has this line, what did I wrote it down. Uh, I'm going to tongue I'm going to tongue fuck a hole in your throat till I puke blood, which is just an all timer. And then she does indeed like bite um, the throat of this, uh, this punk guy and the geyser of blood that erupts from his yeah. neck is like, it's like they took all the, the blood from the elevator sequence in the shining and just decided to uh, shoot it through uh, yes. this guy's hole. And then like, I don't want to, I mean, I, I could just list them all, but um Another one I really liked was uh, in the the climactic sequence. There's a woman who uh, who turns around and she's got a you know gash in her throat that I assume I think we're meant to uh, surmise has been chewed open with a rat. Um, and then uh, she had the the master is using that hole to speak through her. It's just like there's it's yeah it's just the 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 gags are clever and effective and tangible um and i just you know as a gore hound i love them all yeah they they make sense like as absurd and as ridiculous as they are they make sense mm -hmm. and you can tell that they put a lot of thought behind them which is what i love like so often in horror films you'll see all this excess gore but it's just gratuitous mm -hmm. like it, it it doesn't you can tell there wasn't a lot of thought into it it was like oh okay if we chop off his arm it'll bleed a lot yeah. Like this, they're actually putting the time. It reminded me of like those old, like in the early Friday the 13th films, like all, you know, the Tom Savini stuff, like all of the attention he was putting into those death scenes mm -hmm. and, and the practical gore in those death scenes. That's what it reminded me of because they do, they do put in the, the attention to detail, which I think is so needed in horror films. Otherwise, it's just gratuitous for the sake of being gratuitous. Yeah, no, this was this was building a tone um, and it's, you know, creating some, you know, uh, it's so absurd that you never really feel bad laughing. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. The, uh, the horrible deaths of these people, um, but it's still grounded in enough emotional reality that it never feels like a cartoon, which I think is important. Absolutely. And that, again, that's all Barbara and Larry, like just making that work. Like, and, and it's a good, you know, but I should also say, I don't want, I mean, I want to give them all the credit, but also not give them all the credit because it's actually a pretty tight little script. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's a tight script. The script really works. And, you know, a lot, majority of the time, I would say, honestly, 80% of the time, my issue with horror films is the script. It's on the mm -hmm. script level. So it's always nice when this, the foundation is there and then they're able to take that. And, you know, when you've got a filmmaker like Travis, who obviously is creative and, and is taking risks and really kind of throwing everything at the wall to see those two things merge together, it does not happen as much as you think it does. It, it, it would just in general in horror films, like usually there's some sort of disconnect there, but here they were just all on the same page. And that's so nice when that happens. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that I had assumed going in. I had it all figured out just from the barest of uh, details I knew, but this thing is operating on a rhythm that is all its own. Um, I can confidently say I never knew where it was going, yet the route uh, it took to get there always made sense to me. Um, You know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's just a fun, fun time. Um, Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's the best way I could describe it to somebody if they ask me, should I watch Jacob's Wife is, it's just a fun fucking movie. Yeah. It's and just, then, yeah. Yeah, Chloe and I, uh, you know, while we were having our morning coffee this morning, I was just, you know, reviewing it and she had watched it with me initially and she was just like, yeah, she like she was distracted. She had stuff going on, but she just kept like getting pulled back to uh, the, the TV um, and just watching these long scenes just commenting on how much she she loved it so yeah it's it's definitely very rewatchable yeah well if uh jacob's wife sounds interesting to you it is currently available wherever you find vod releases i know it was in some select theaters but i don't think it is anymore i think your best bet is going to be to just track it down on vod and like i said you can find it anywhere uh up next chris and i are going to discuss the films we believe inspired jacob's wife but first a word from our sponsor we are back now is when chris and i curate for you your very own movie mixtape inspired by the films we just discussed these are films we believe could have should have or did inspire jacob's wife and no one knows if we're right except for the filmmakers but before we dive into that even though i feel like we covered this at the top of the show are there are there any things that you need to plug chris any podcast appearances or any projects or anything that you're like oh I want these motherfuckers to check that out. No. (laughs) I love the confidence with which you said no. I got nothing. I mean, hopefully um, uh, Cobweb and Chainsaw, I mean, neither have release dates yet, um, either even finished in post, frankly. But um, uh, yeah, when those come out, I'll be plugging them. But in the meantime, nothing. Hey, I I like that. we touched on this earlier, but I had a really tough time at first and maybe even throughout coming up with films that I thought really would sort of fit a mixtape for Jacob's wife. Because, And I think part of the issue with me was I was so focused on horror at the beginning, but then I was like, you know, I feel like this film is just as inspired by non-horror films as it is horror mm-hmm. films. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I had the the same issue. Once again, it's I think it's because part of it for me was that like I said, it wears its influences on its sleeve so much that it's hard to just come up with something that isn't super obvious. I don't know if I accomplished that. Um, I have one movie and um, that I, part of me just thinks that you've done this one. So I'm going to, it's going to be my first one. So you can't steal it from me. If you well, do steal well, any of mine, um, remember, you're screwed. Remember, I start us out. So you get to hear mine first in case. Yeah. So remember right. that. Yes. Okay. I, I, I just threw you that curveball. Mm-hmm. Um, but um. Well, I'm going to I'm going to start out with to me the most obvious one. And so maybe this will uh be be your ability to uh uh maybe change course or you could pick the same film, Chris. I can't change course. I have prepared three movies and three movies. Oh only. wow. Uh well, um I'll start out with this film, uh which to me was the first film that popped into my mind because it is a film that has to do it is a horror film that has to do about a troubled marriage. And it also is about uh, it's a film where that sort of discord in that marriage takes on a, another sort of uh, 
weird otherworldly supernatural form and Uh-oh. it is uh yep i <laughs> it is possession well <laughs> all right Not i had the one fi- i thought you were gonna go with but okay. uh, definitely one that no no i mean that's one of my three. Oh god okay well it's finally happened it's the first time ever that i've had the same film as another guest i have another movie that like i can talk briefly about um that is the has the loosest of connections but one i just kind of want to plug well or i can give you connection and go i've got a list of about eight films so i could choose another film all right if if you want to sure let's do that let's do that i'm going to be the gracious host and i'm going to give you possession and i'm going to switch to another film Uh, i don't have a lot to say on it so like you can definitely chime in and um add your own two cents absolutely well we're going to hold on possession right now and then i'm going to talk about another film um and wow, I I can't believe it took till episode in the mid twenties for us to finally rep- have a, the same film. Um, okay, so my 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 first pick now is a, a film which I adore. It is not a horror film, but I do think it is one of the great American films and one of the the top films of the nineteen sixties. Uh, it is from one of my absolute favorite uh, directors, John Cassavetes. And it is his 1968 film, Faces. And this is a film about a, uh, a sort of uh, middle-class husband played by, um, oh shit, John Marley. And um, he tells his wife that he wants a divorce. He uh, starts seeing this younger woman played by the luminous Gina Rollins. And uh, his wife, uh, starts sort of going out and finding herself again as well uh, with her friends. And and, and it, this is really a film about, uh, it's about two people who used to love each other, who have sort of fallen into this rut and can't figure out what's causing that. So they feel like it. they need to find that old feeling in the arms of other people. And uh, it, it's a film about uh, sort of trying to, trying to regain what you've lost. And uh, that to me speaks so much to Jacob's wife. And because this is very much a film about a couple, Jacob's wife is very much a film about a couple that uh, obviously used to be in love and used to have the spark. And now the spark's gone out. And how do you, how do you get that spark back? And obviously this is a very different film in a lot of ways because it's not a horror film. It's not, it doesn't about vampires. It doesn't have a lot of blood, but I would argue, I would say that, for as much tangible physical carnage we see in Jacob's wife, there's just as much of that in faces on an emotional level. And um, this is a film I saw when I was really young. I went on a Cassavetes uh, kick early, like probably when I was like 17 or 18. I just started, I I became obsessed with Cassavetes after seeing uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie and was like, oh, I, I wanna see everything this dude does. And I just, and Faces was, was one of my favorites from that sort of initial discovery. And I've seen it a couple of times since over the years. It, it holds up remarkably well. Uh, it features, you know, like I said, it features those staple Cassavetes actors, Gina Rowland, Seymour Cassell, uh, Lynn Carlin is in this. Um, it, it's just, it's just a, a phenomenal movie. And, uh, you know, people, I don't know. I feel like Cassavetes went through this period of, at least when I was growing up where he was the filmmaker, but I feel like in the last 10, 15 years or so, I just don't, 
I don't feel that same sort of energy around Cassavetes and his work anymore. And I don't know if that people just think it's gotten stale or maybe it hasn't held up quite as well. But for anybody who thinks that, you just need to dive into a film like Faces and uh, it holds up remarkably well. And his films are still so alive and vibrant and you see them and you're like, how did this come out in 1968? Like, dude was so ahead of his time. Like, like some of the stuff you see in his films, like that emotional rawness and vulnerability, you don't even see that in films today. And um, yeah, I adore this film. Uh, I think it shares a lot of uh, emotional DNA with Jacob's wife. And that's why it is my first choice. Um, That's that's a good one. I am ashamed to admit that Cassavetes is one of my big um, blank spots in my film education. I have seen Chinese Bookie. um, And I think is is Shadows the first one that he made or is that Uh. the name? I think so. I think you're okay. right. Uh, I, I've seen that one, one, but I think I was way too young and I thought I was like a really adventurous film watcher, but that one was, it's very um, rough and scrappy if memory serves. And I was a little turned off at, about it, at, turned off on it at the time, but it is, um, I don't know, for whatever it's, I, I have not done the proper dive into his filmography the way I should. Um, I've been very eager to see um a woman under the influence and oh, uh, opening yeah. night. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll take this as my um, inspiration to finally uh, uh, start checking those off the list. Yeah. I mean, I think all of his films have criterion releases at this point, or at least all of his, you know, his substantial work, but yeah, this is the film where I think he came into his own like shadows mm-hmm. is I love shadows, but it is, it is very much a first feature. It's, it's very scrappy. It's very sort of like, him sort of figuring out how to make his voice work on film and faces. I feel like even though it's, I mean, it's not, I don't think faces is a second feature. I think he, he definitely made stuff between there, but this is the film for me that you really feel like he's coming into his own with his sort of autorial voice. And, um, and yeah, yeah, I think you'll really, really dig this film. Yeah, I was always intrigued by it. I mean, I um, I had uh, a decade under the influence on DVD and I would go through that thing like once every few months just, and um, uh, yeah, Faces was always one I was very intrigued by. But yeah, I don't know why. I've got I've got no good reason why I've never seen it. But um, this That's is- okay. This is, uh, you know, when I'm doing my, uh, my mixtape, obviously this will be number one. Well, um, I, I mean, I can't imagine what your for- first choice is going to be, Chris. So why don't you tell us about it? Well, obviously, I'm going to go with Possession, which was oh, going to be my last one. Great choice. Uh, yeah. So please feel free to uh, add whatever you want, because I'm going to keep it short, because Possession uh, is the kind of movie that gets spoken about a lot on these types of podcasts. And yeah. I feel like there's really nothing I can add to the conversation. Why did you bring it up? Then you ask. Well, once again, didn't have a whole lot of time. And this was one of the first that... Um, came to mind um so yeah much smarter people have already gone long on this very subject but uh it's one of andre zaleski's uh strangest yet also most accessible movies um it's a work i think of uh and i don't think i'm going to get a lot of pushback on this but of unparalleled genius uh that is almost as hard to see uh oh no i make reference to one of my other movies so uh you know i can't understand how it doesn't have a criterion release already um that's just something I find very frustrating. I mean, not even criteria, but to any major release um, on Blu-ray. Um, but I saw it at a once beloved, now disgraced cine family, where it was the highlight of an entire month uh, spent watching Zulaski movies uh, that I remember very fine, fondly as almost a fever dream. Um, and uh, it remains one of my favorite theatrical experiences. Uh, they actually started it with uh, Isabel Anjani's 
uh, music video for um, Pull Marine, which is a song that I've subsequently become obsessed with. I think the video is directed by, um, um, oh my God, I'm completely blanking on his name. Uh, Rini Harlan. No, horrible person, but um, uh, Leon the Professional, Fifth Element. Luc uh, Besson. Luc Besson, yes. Um, Anyway, the plot, and I use this term loosely, uh, follows Sam Neill as a man returning to his home in West Berlin, only to learn that his wife, uh, played by the aforementioned goat, Isabella Anjani, uh, wants a divorce. Uh, I won't go into the whole thing, but very, uh, very long story short, uh, he learns that she's been sleeping with a tentacle monster that may or may not be her child. I'm still unclear about that one. Um, anyway, there's doppelgangers and murder and the classic Zulaski hysteronics where every performance is dialed to 11, all anchored by uh, Anjani's just jaw-dropping physicality. Um, there's the scene of her miscarriage in the subway that has been memed to death at this point, but nonetheless maintains all of its power. Uh, I you know, think it's just one of the greatest movies ever made of, uh, in spite or perhaps because of my inability to understand it. Um, and the reason I bring it up is on Johnny's performance specifically um, in relation to Jacob's wife. Um, so there's of course the connection between the two movies and that they're both about marriages affected by the wife's dalliances with the supernatural otherworldly forces. Uh, but what, I, what made me think of Possession were all the moments in the film of uh, Crampton just alone on screen, screen, free to go wild, whether it's crawling and twisting around on the floor after her workout, um, speaking to the mirror, or when she first comes home and she's uh, just drenched in blood and she's making these like horrid twisted faces, um, or simply dancing around her living room with a, a lamp and a glass of uh, red blood as wine. Um, I just really love seeing her go for broke and uh, wish the movie had even more of that, not that I'm complaining. Um, and yeah, that's why, uh, that's why I thought of Possession. Uh, yeah, um, you know, Possession, I saw at Beyond Fest for the first time, and um, I, you're right, this is a film that's talked about a lot on podcasts like this. I mean, I, I also don't understand it. I, I That's one of the flummoxing things about it. I appreciate it on so many levels, but the fact that I, I don't understand it is so frustrating to me. I'm frustrated at myself, but I'm also frustrated at the filmmaking. Um, I've heard Elric Kane wax poetic on this film so many times. You know, he's been such a champion of this film for a long time. And I, as, as, as eloquent as he is, as insightful as he is, he is yet to be able, in any time I've heard him discuss this film, make me understand what the fuck it means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I just don't know. But I'm so wrapped up in the filmmaking of it that even my frustrations with the filmmaking of it don't make me dislike the film. I think it is such an experience, this film. And it's a film that I feel like needs to be seen on a big screen. I just feel like this is one where that experience is, I, I fortunately got to see it at the Egyptian and it was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I, 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 everything you just said, I agree. Isabella Jani is so incredible in this film. Sam Neill is great. Um, it, it really, you know, it has so much DNA with Jacob's wife, I feel mm -hmm. like. Obviously, this was absolutely an inspiration. And I think maybe even Travis mentions this film in our interview with him about the film. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a great choice. Um, so you're, are you telling me that you didn't pass out when you watched this film? Okay, so Billy, you were obviously referencing the time I uh, very candidly told you about the three uh, movie theater experiences where I almost passed out. Um, 
the first being 127 hours, the second being the Maniac uh, remake, and uh, the third being um, Angst. Uh, so no, <laughs> this was not one of those. This was uh, not but one thank of you those. for continuing to um, not let me live that down. I just uh, wanted I wanted everyone listening to know. I um, I guess I'm a sensitive boy. I didn't realize that, but um, yeah, those movies are intense. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree that they are intense. Um, okay, so that was obviously a great choice because we both picked it. Yes. Uh, my next choice is another somewhat obvious choice. Okay. And But it's not a film I hear talked about as much these days, so I wanted to highlight it. Um, I could give a, a, a crazy, a vague buildup, but it's George Romero's Martin. Okay. Um, it's his it's his 1977 film about a guy named Martin who is convinced that he is an 84 year old vampire and he doesn't have fangs. He doesn't have any kind of vampire mojo or anything like that. He, um, he basically drugs women, cuts them and drinks their blood that way. Uh, he ends up moving, uh, to live with his uncle who also shares the belief that he's a vampire and, uh, and Martin uh, tries to, uh, at that point, just sort of prey on uh, low lives and denizens of society. Um, and then there is a romance that gets involved where he kind of falls for a woman. And this is a film about, very similar to Jacob's Wife, and then it's about somebody uh, learning to be a vamp, quote unquote vampire. And um it, it certainly doesn't deal with most of the sort of main themes of Jacob's wife, but what I love about Martin, um, which uh, Travis, you know, I, I don't, when I interview somebody before I record the main podcast and they mention a film, I typically don't ever mention that film because I don't want to seem like I just ripped it off from the filmmaker. But in this case, it's just so obviously an inspiration and it, it is a film that I don't hear talked about a lot, particularly when, we're t when people are talking about like the great Romero films. I don't hear Martin as much these days, in at least my circles. And so I felt like it was a good one to have on this list because this is a scrappy uh, film. It, this is just, this is a film that is so put together with like love and duct tape. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really appreciate about it. I think uh, John Amplis is great as Martin. I think he's given a terrific performance. You've got great supporting performances from Tom Savini, even George Romero himself. Um, this is just a, a really fun, interesting film that I do think has some DNA with, with Jacob's wife. I think it'd be a great double feature with Jacob's wife, frankly. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, I just, I just love it. I haven't seen it in a while and uh, but I, and I would love to revisit it soon, but I, I, I adore this film. Yeah. It's been a while for me as well. I also love this movie. This was a movie that, yeah, I guess you don't really hear about it that much these days, but I remember like when I was a kid on the early days of internet um, film discussion boards or whatever, um, that got talked about a lot. And for whatever reason, it just didn't seem like all that appealing to me, like a realistic vampire movie. Um, cool. Uh, but then I had a, um, the best class I had in college was my horror movie class, which was basically just four hours every Wednesday night um, with my crazy teacher just showing us all these classics. Um, and Martin was one of them. And to my great surprise, it is just a 
truly just entertaining from start to finish. Uh, just super fun, compelling movie. I'm scant on details, um, but I just remember really loving it. And I would uh, uh, love to revisit it, which again, which is uh, the, the great thing about this podcast. Yeah, uh, that's it. That's yeah. it. That and folks can you know revisit it along with a lot of other great uh, films in the movie mixtape when they have sixteen hours to kill. Mm-hmm. Oh okay. yes, yeah, so just real quick. Um, last time I was on, I kind of scoffed at the idea of uh, watching that many movies all in one sitting, and I can say that since doing that, I have done that quite a few times. Uh, uh, yeah, five or six movies in a on a Sunday um, a marathon has occurred. So uh, I take back everything I said before. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate appreciate you eating crow for me. Um, <laughs> or maybe I've just been depressed. Uh, hey, it, that's also possible as mm-hmm. I sit here and pop my Lexapro. No, um, <laughs> so uh, what would your second choice be, sir? Okay, since I'm pretty confident you're now that you're not going to do the one I was worried about, I'm going to stick with my second choice and do another one that I think is um, pretty obvious. And once again, I'll be scant on details because I didn't get the chance to rewatch it. So I'm mostly going by memories. But like I said, this is an obvious choice because um, it is another uh, Larry Fezidin. Yep, Fessenden, okay. Fessenden, Fes- uh, vampire movie, uh, but I don't care. I love it. Uh, it's Habit, um, which Larry wrote, directed, and stars in, uh, yep. where he plays a scuzzy, burnout, bohemian Gen X type living in New York in the early 90s. Uh, he's an alcoholic, and yes, this is a movie that uses vampirism as a very unsubtle metaphor addiction which to be clear i have no problem with the subtlety is overrated and this movie rocks um so anyway at a halloween party still reeling from his father's death and recent breakup sam meets a mysterious woman named anna played by meredith snader uh they start hooking up on the reg and having kinky dangerous feeling sex and of course this makes sam feel alive but like any high this one has a hell of a come down uh the more sam uh uh, feels like shit the more he and we suspect that Anna may be a vampire sucking the life out of him. Um, I think anyway, I didn't have a chance to rewatch, as I said. Uh, but regardless, uh, this movie has a really haunting naturalism in its vibe and captures the grungy early 90s Greenwich Village aesthetic in such an appealing way that it really uh, kills me that you can no longer be this kind of slacker in the city anymore. Um, but although I really love everything about this movie, the marquee reason I return to it is for Sam's best friend, Nick, played by Aaron Beale, um, who is just a character that I am obsessed with. Um, he affects this theatrical way of speaking that is hilariously pretentious, which leads to what is honestly one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema. I pull it up and uh, just randomly on YouTube um, just to make me feel good when I need it. Uh, it's late in the film. Uh, the story basically just stops dead um, for this extended scene where Sam uh, basically just relates the entire plot of the movie up to that point to Nick, who's just responding, uh, incredulously probing for more details um, and his big uh, verbose uh, theatrical uh, uh, way of performing. And it's just so hilarious and appealing. And I truly, I, I, I don't think I'm selling it, um, but just trust me, the scene is great. And just watch the whole movie. Um, the whole movie is fantastic, but that scene in particular is just one that I just adore. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's Habit. It's a good movie. Uh, Larry's best, in my opinion. 
Yeah, uh, I have not seen that film, I don't think since maybe uh, the year after it came out. And I have very loose memories of it. But I remember enjoying that film. I'm a big fan of Larry Fessenden as a filmmaker. Like, I I did, I really dig Wendigo. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can appreciate, you know, um, what is it, Below. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm a fan of his. Uh, this is one I just need to revisit because I, ha- I have such limited memories of it because it's been so long since I've seen it. Uh, but everything you just said made me like, oh, well, yeah, I definitely need to check that out again. And it makes, it's a perfect choice for this because obviously Larry Fessenden, but, um, it has, it, it, it definitely has a lot of, uh, symmetry with Jacob's wife as well. Yeah. I think that was, um, probably uh, part of the appeal of casting him. Partly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. Yeah. Partly. Yeah. Well, no, it's just this film. Otherwise who the fuck cares about Larry Fessenden? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a great choice, Chris. Thank you. Please don't steal my last one. Um, I can make no promises. Um, I went in a similar route uh, for this choice as you did for the last one, because it is also tangentially connected to Larry Fessenden because his uh, company glass eye picks uh, is, is on this film. And I believe he's on as a producer and he's in it as well too. So he's got a small role in it as well. And this is, uh, this is a film that I had not seen until recently. Um, I bought the DVD of it because I could not find a Blu-ray. And um, this is a filmmaker that I'm hit or miss on a lot of the time. But I wanted to see this film because I had always heard such interesting things about it. And I finally watched it about, I would say about two or three weeks ago. And I was so glad that I did. It is it is this person's first feature. It is Ty West. Mm. And it is called The Roost. Ah, and uh, from 2005. And uh, so the film opens with this sort of uh, like nightmare theater segment with Tom Noonan as the host of this sort of like cable access horror movie show. And he's introducing this film, The Roost. Mm-hmm. And The Roost is about this group of friends who are going to a friend's wedding. Uh, they have car trouble and uh, they end up finding themselves at this sort of uh this this farm in Pennsylvania where there happen to be vampire bats in the barn and if a vampire bat bites you it sort of turns you into this zombie and um this is such a fun film it reminded me of Jacob's wife on on the like on the surface for surface reasons because it's you know got the vampire connection but I also really connected with this because of the practical effects the gore and the obvious love for those kind of films and the films like Evil Dead and, and Dead Alive and those really heightened, like where the gore is so heightened that it's absurd. And The Roost and Jacob's Wife certainly have that in common. Um, I also just, you know, just like Larry Fessenden and Barbara Crampton have such a natural sort of lived in relationship. I really thought these kids in this film were very natural and believable. And, and that's something that I wasn't expecting in this film. I was expecting just some dumb horror film. Probably not fair considering, you know, whether or not you like Ty West films. He doesn't, do. he doesn't really just make dumb shit like that. He makes very purposeful films. And, you know, I love House of the Devil. I, I, I but that to me is the only film of his until this point that I really connected with. I thought Innkeepers was a, a great exercise. Uh, I, I did not care for the sacrament. Um, I didn't care for In the Valley of Violence. 
but this film had such this like because it is his first film it's got this sort of youthful energy to it this throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks and um and i really responded to that and it, it's a it's shaggy it's certainly a shaggy film you know he's coming into his own he's figuring out how things work but it's shot really well. It's, it's, you know, you know, a lot of this film takes place at night. And usually when that happens with a first time filmmaker, yeah. it's a problem. It's not a problem here. Um, it was also interesting to see a film about vampires where the, the, where it's about vampire bats. And, and yeah. there was so much about this film that I just thought was creative and unique. And, and a lot of the same feelings I felt when I was watching Jacob's wife. It's also a film that until recently I had never heard anybody talk about which to me is always a great excuse to mention it on this podcast uh, it, because it, it's a film that I do think is a lot of fun. I don't know that it's available much of anywhere. I had to buy the DVD, which I did. It wasn't that expensive. And um, so glad that I did. I had so much fun with this. And anytime you put Tom Noonan in a movie, you're going to have me interested. Ty West has done that uh, multiple times. And so mm -hmm. for that reason alone, uh, I'm always interested in what he does, whether or not I love the majority of his work. Yeah, uh, I assume that's a great choice. Uh, I also have not seen it. It is one that I've been, I'm, I I would say I'm intrigued by, but honestly, I, I wasn't. I just kind of wrote it off as a first film. I am a Ty West fan. I love House of the Devil. I have a lot of respect for Innkeepers. I'm not the biggest fan of the sacrament, but um, yeah. but uh, yeah, that all sounds very appealing to me. Also, very loose connection, Ty West in your next uh, in an acting role and uh uh, oh, that's right. There's a stream with, uh, with Babs. A lot of so, connective tissue there. Yeah. Um, a hilarious character. I, I, I've said this before. I, I don't feel like a lot of people agree with me, but I personally think Your Next is just one of the best comedies of uh, the last uh, decade or so. Um, I think it's hilarious. I think Joe Swanberg specifically um, has uh, uh, his character and his performance in that movie is just endlessly hysterically funny to me. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ty West as the um, uh, very obviously very privileged quote unquote uh, filmmaker um, uh, is just that's I don't know I, it's all very appealing to me. Um, um, I will I will add that the roost I didn't know this either until I watched it but I used to have a big crush when I was younger on the actor Will Horneth. Mm -hmm. And people might know him. He was the, the kid in Ghost in the Machine and Born to be Wild. Oh, of course. He's, yeah. he's also the kid that uh, in the Sandlot gets told he plays ball like a girl. Yeah. And um, I used to have a big crush on him when I was younger. And so he's in this film too. I think his sister's in it too. I think it's him and his sister in this film. And uh, it was so nice seeing him in that because I don't think he acts anymore. And it was just like, holy shit, I used to have your poster on my wall. <laughs> um. Yeah, that's that's fun. I'll check that out. Um, uh, yeah, it's worth checking out for sure. Okay, we're here. We're to your final choice, which I did not choose. So okay, it's all I yours. was really convinced you were going to. Um, okay, so my final choice is the film Diary of a Mad Housewife. Ah, um, this is a movie that uh, you know we had the VHS in my house growing up. Um, it was a tape that sat unopened, still in its plastic uh, on our VHS shelf, and I was just completely uninterested in it as a kid i think for obvious reasons like it looked it just looked old almost alien in how outdated all the fashion was the colors were faded or whatever but then um and i didn't really think much of it but then uh a few years ago my uh uh my parents had a um garage sale and uh, i was informed that someone uh, had purchased our 
VHS of Little Mermaid with the penis on the cover for $2, which is a uh, very valuable piece of um, uh, uh, product there. And uh, so I, to make sure this didn't happen again, I did a cursory Google search of the most valuable VHSs. And lo and behold, apparently Diary of a Mad Housewife, or Mad Housewife, put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, um, is, uh, is a very rare um, commodity. Um, and so I told my mom, and it's now uh, in the same piece of place of storage where we keep our beanie babies. <laughs> um, but it's the reason it's so rare is it's, like it's just an impossible movie to find. The only yeah. place you can really find it these days, at least um, in my estimation, is these really terrible YouTube rips, which is how I saw it because I was so interested. Um, but uh, so the movie is directed by Katy Perry's Uncle Frank, yep. uh, known for such classics as Play It As It Lays and Mommy Dearest. But most importantly, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Swimmer. Yep. And I've spoken about this. Yep. Um, so uh, it tells the story of a woman named Tina, played by uh, Connie Snodgrass. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think it's Carrie, right? Is it Carrie? I think it's Carrie Snodgrass. Oh, well, let me just quickly Google this because I don't want to be... You're so right. Why did I write down Connie? Okay. Well, I had the last name right, but of course. So Carrie Snodgrass, <laughs> who is stuck in a terrible marriage with, uh, who we can only describe as one of the most outlandish, cartoonishly loathsome husbands ever committed to film. It's played by Richard Benjamin, uh, whose characterization is unbearably grating, yet somehow utterly compulsively watchable uh this performance in my mind is high art and like poochie before him every time he wasn't on screen i found my myself asking where's jonathan yep. uh anyway tina is obviously too good for this man but she's nonetheless trapped because of the uh their two shitty daughters and the social pressures of late 60s new york society uh as terrible as her life is she seems more or less resigned to her fate that is until she and Jonathan attend a swinging party where Alice Cooper's band is playing and she meets an author played by Frank Langella. Uh, Frank plays George, the kind of aggressively sexual, uh, important art male archetype author that used to be so in vogue but would now result in several Daily Beast exposés. Uh, anyway, they begin a toward sexual affair uh, that, of course, reinvigorates Tina's lust and passions, but it isn't long before she realizes that George is just as terrible as her husband, just in completely different ways. Uh, so she goes back to Jonathan only for him to reveal that his bad investments have left them bankrupt and he has been having an affair of his own. So it ends with Tina in group therapy getting yelled at by Frank Boyle. Uh, anyway, I adore this movie. Uh, Richard Benjamin arguably takes away from its impact because of how broad his performance is, but honestly, that's just what made me love it all the more. It's completely surreal, almost Lynchian, how terrible this yeah. guy is. Uh, Carrie Snodgrass uh, is incredible, and Frank Langella is great as ever. Um, I just wish to God there was some HD restored version available because I, you know, just based on the swimmer alone, like I know yeah. this movie probably looked gorgeous upon release, but now all we have available to us are these just awful, dull, washed out YouTube videos. But um, yeah, this movie is, uh, it's a masterpiece. I, I am not surprised it was so far off my radar for so long, um, yeah. but now that I've seen it, um, I, it's, I, uh, it's very highly esteemed in my mind. Yeah, this is a great choice. It is not one I thought of, unfortunately, even though I do enjoy this film. I saw this film on TCM. 
Um, and this was years ago. Uh, and uh, I, it, it, it was on my radar because I was a Frank, fa- I was a Frank Perry fan from Mommy Dearest. Mm-hmm. And that sort of is what made me discover The Swimmer and, uh, you know, some of his other great films like, uh, and he's, he made several like Last Summer, which I also really enjoy. And, um, you know, I, 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 his career is so, it's upsetting to me because I feel like after Mommy Dearest and how that film was received, it sort of sent him down this road of just making these really disposable like 1980s comedies. Yeah. And which is a shame because he was such a unique filmmaker. Like, you know, he came out of the gate with such a great film, David and Lisa, mm-hmm. which um, with uh, Kier Dullier and uh, it, it was up for Oscars and it was like such a great first feature. Yeah. He, he, did he also direct that with his wife or just uh, co-write it? Um, I think he directed it by himself, but he did. I'm sure he co-wrote it uh, or she wrote it and he directed it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David and Lisa, anyway. And he had such a string of really awesome films. Of course, I agree with you. I think The Swimmer is, is you know, probably towards the top of that list. Yeah. Um, I also really love Mommy Dearest for what it is. I, I think people unfairly malign that film uh, because it is so histrionic. But it is such a, I think, a, a startling piece of entertainment. Um, Diary of a Mad Housewife is a terrific film. Um, I, 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 I agree it is impossible to find but um my i think carrie snodgrass is just so goddamn amazing in this movie yeah um, she's did neil ju- young write a song about her based on that movie i think i saw that uh, when i was like oh. doing my my google research um, I probably should have it, it says down. right here that uh yes he did it was on his film harvest his album Harvest. yeah yeah and evidently according to the wikipedia groucho marx was not a fan of this movie Oh right, yeah, I saw that. Uh, I they're they're in bed too much. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Why should I watch them do it? Well, yeah, well, yeah. We good, good, good idea there. Good, good job, Groucho. <laughs> way to way to really dissect this film. Um, yeah, this him. this seems like a film that will probably at some point get some sort of treatment, whether it's a Criterion treatment or. You know, I, hope. I, I feel so like this deserves it. It's so yeah. weird and unique and. Um, just like the editing, like there's the, the opening montage where you just see her life is just edited in such like a um, a way that is, um, um, it, I don't know. It's once again, it's still too early for me. Uh, it's interesting. It's edited in an interesting, compelling yeah. way. Um, everything about this movie is there, a choice is being made and it's not the obvious one. And it's nonetheless the right one. Yeah. And it's so nice seeing young Frank Langella. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. It's like he he's he's so great. Like he's so great. He's got, he still has even that young. He's got such a towering presence. Like he just he's one of those actors. The um, first time I did not confuse him with Christopher Lee. Oh, the, the first time, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, I can't yeah. be the only one who sees it. They're the um, same person. I won't say that they're the same person. I will say that there are similarities, but I will not say that they are the same person. How disrespectful! Who am I disrespecting? The They're late great. The the late Christopher Lee. Uh, are you know, googling to see if he's late? Uh, no, no, he's dead. I know Christopher <laughs> Lee's dead. Lord, he's he, if he was alive, he'd be one hundred and sixty. Um, wow, this is a great choice. Uh, I like I said, I did not think of this. Uh, I was okay. thinking along the lines right, of like these nineteen seventies dramas, but this was not one that I was thinking of. I did think of uh. I did think of uh, like some uh, Rossellini films, uh, but I did not play them. Oh, well, we'll just dive right into them. What were the, some? Were there any films that you thought of that you didn't include? Uh, yeah, I mean, just 
what do I have here? Uh, Ginger Snaps was one um, just in terms of, you know, using a, um, a, a young woman or in that case, a young woman um, who uh, after being bitten by a werewolf uh, is no longer meek and uh, submissive. Although I guess she wasn't really, it, it was, there's a reason I didn't go with this choice, but yeah, Ginger Snaps was one of them. And then the other one that I had just, I don't really have anything to say about it, but I just wanted to bring it up because there's, only just in terms of um, the first act's tone, where it was like quiet and eerie, and also just the setting, the very rural, uh, isolated setting, reminded me of a movie that you and I watched when we were uh, judges for a, uh, a film festival over the summer um, that I loved called uh, Senzaru. Um, right. And I would, uh, I probably should have written more down. Um, I think it's directed by. Um, uh, a director named uh, Zia Magnus. I might have that wrong, but it's this um, very quiet, slow burn of uh, a horror movie about a um, um, a woman who is the caretaker for an old woman um, just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, Midwest, I believe. And it was just a movie I was so utterly impressed by like I can't imagine the budget was more than like 20 grand um 50 maybe but it uh, manages to accomplish so much with um so little resources just the performances are amazing the tone is incredible um it's just a really haunting work and um I I doubt it's going to get much of a release because of how small it is um but if you have the ability to I would greatly encourage everyone to check that out so that's uh and once again i might also be pronouncing this incorrectly uh senzaru s-a-n-z-a-r-u i think that's right yeah yeah um yeah great movie yeah uh i i didn't have many i i i thought about some rossellini films that didn't happen uh bergman scenes from a marriage Mm -hmm. uh i considered also uh the squid the squid and the whale uh, which is a film I love. And then uh, Before Midnight, the final part of, you know, Linklater's trilogy, uh, I thought of as well. But those were those were all the... Oh, smart. Sort of- oh and I did, uh, I would never have said it, but I was getting Fargo vibes um, just in the early going. Yeah. The, the um, what was it say, uh, Mike Yamagita? Um, yes, yes. And uh, yeah, Francis goes to meet him, the, uh, the early affair with her uh, ex-lover very much reminded me of those scenes. Um. Well, so our movie mixtape consists of Jacob's Wife, Faces, Possession, Martin, Habit, The Roost, and Diary of a Mad Housewife. What an interesting mix of films. Yeah, that's going to be a hell of a marathon. It sure is. And, you know, I always add a seventh film to the list, just something that we talked about on the show. And just because of all the connections, I think it's going to have to be your next Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, just I definitely. Yeah. Just because of all the connections, that just seems the right way to do it. Um, wow. Well, that was. You know what? What a what a fun discussion that we we all pulled together in a matter of forty eight hours. I didn't think this is what I was going to be doing on my Friday, but um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm happy with this. Yeah, I didn't think I, I didn't. Yeah, I also did not think that we were going to be doing this at early morning on Friday, but I'm glad we did because it got me up earlier than I might have been otherwise. There you go um but yeah those are that was those are some great films and yeah jacob's wife is a super fun film i think this list reflects that mm-hmm. um so i've done all the asking you for plugs and shit like what's going on can i trick you into giving me more chainsaw details you can try but that's a terrible trick was that your best effort 
Oh, let me give, okay, I'm gonna give it one more effort. Okay, just erase your mind and pretend that I'm not about to do that. Mm -hmm. cool. Okay, here we go. Knock, knock. Who's there? Give me a chainsaw detail. <laughs> um, uh, it, there's, it, there's gonna be a lot of blood and carnage. Hey, you heard it here, fo here folks. I already told you, I think, I think um, uh, Texas Chainsaw 3 is a good detail. Yeah, that's um, exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. So uh, it, it will be R-rated, we assume. It will be R-rated. That was also in the official news. It does ha have an NPAA rating. Um, I'll also say, okay, I'll give you a, a something that's not going to be in there. I don't think oh. there's any spoilers. Something I really want it to be, but I was desperate to get Chop Top, or at least a reference to Chop Top in there at some point. And <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to blow anyone's mind, but that does not happen. Oh, it doesn't? I don't think Legendary is going to be mad at me for telling you that Chop Top is not in the movie. Oh, God damn it. Ah, well, that's, you know what? You heard it here, folks. Here, go see it. Folks. Go see it. Spend money on it. If it makes money, they'll make another one. I mean, they're going to make another one anyway. <laughs> sure. Pay 10, nine, of course. 10. Um, of course they're going to make another one. But uh, yeah, but maybe um, in the same um, universe, then I can get my Chop Top in there. Well, I, I would love to see that. And I think everybody else would too. Um, Chris, thanks for doing this on such a last minute. Of course. Uh, glad I could be of service. Um, some quick housekeeping. Uh, dropping May 4th. Uh, it's the first installment of a new interview series we're doing called Chewing the Fat. We are sitting down with actor and filmmaker William Butler from Leatherface, the Ginger Dead Man series, his new memoir, uh, Tawdry Tales and Confessions from Horror's Boy Next Door. It's available in bookstores now. And we're going to be talking to him about his career, his new book. He's a blast to talk to, so it should be a really fun discussion. Uh, please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check us out on Letterboxd for all of our fabulously curated movie mixtapes, including this one. That's at Movies with Gravy there and across all social media. Again, a big thanks to Chris. And now uh, we're going to be uh, giving you uh, once again our interview with Travis Stevens, the uh, director and co-writer of Jacob's Wife. Uh, we recorded this and it was on episode 22 of the podcast, which was our discussion of Tales of the Four Seasons with Alonzo Duraldi. Uh, but we're going to post it again on here so you can kind of get a complete Jacob's Wife package. So uh, without further ado, uh, here's that interview again. I'm here with Travis Stevens, the director and co-writer of the new film Jacob's Wife, which world premiered at the 2021 South by Southwest Film Festival and hits theaters and VOD today. We're recording this early, but when this drops, it'll be today. Travis, thanks for chatting with me, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I'm just going to start at, we, we, we interviewed Barbara Crampton for an earlier episode. Where we were talking about her film Sacrifice. We talked briefly about Jacob's Wife then. It was before South By and the premiere. So just for a refresher, how did you get involved with the project and what was it about the material that just sort of worked for you? Well, I was out promoting uh, my first film as a writer, director, producer called Girl on the Third Floor. And Barbara reached out and said, hey, I've got this passion project. Uh, that I, I really want to make, would you be interested in reading it? And uh, of course the answer was yes. I was friends with Barbara. So we made a movie, we are still here together. And, you know, I've just been friends with her. And if she says, I've, uh, I've got something I care about, my answer is going to be yes. And uh, reading the, the script that at that point 
I think the original one had been written by Mark Steenslin and then the draft I read had been rewritten a bit by Kathy Charles. I read that script and could immediately see why this was such an important movie to Barbara because there's such a correlation between what that main character is going through in her life and what Barbara was going through um, professionally in hers as she was trying to transform her career uh, and take a more active role in it. And so while reading it, it, like immediately I could see what this movie could be in terms of, in terms of if we made it and we cast it right and we, we didn't fuck it up, <laughs> I could see <laughs> that it would actually be a really, really uh, empowering and, and, you know, a great movie for everyone involved. So yeah, I think I decided to do the movie before I had even finished reading the script. Yeah, you know, normally we only get to see Barbara in supporting performances, and this definitely sort of gives her the meatiest role she's had in a, a very long time. I'm, I'm curious, what's it like working with Barbara as an actress and you being her director versus being her producer? That's a, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, she's a producer on this, so there were times where uh, I had to practice sort of getting outside of my head and really, really listening to what her vision was. Uh, and so my job as a director was, was to really help execute her vision. Uh, and, you know, in the other relationship, you know, it's her job to help execute the producer or the director's vision. And, and that's not to say, um, you know, she wasn't, uh, we didn't collaborate or she, she wasn't open to what I was saying, but it was a thing that, throughout the process, I had to remember like, this is her voice. This is her project. This is something she's dreamt about and nurtured and worked on for years. And my job here is to make it the best possible version of that. Uh, so it was a, a different dynamic. And, you know, I think she appreciated uh, the amount of attention I paid to giving her moments to show a side of herself that maybe other movies hadn't asked for. We really, you know, spent a long time trying to create some space in that story for her to show different aspects of, of her acting and uh, Anne as a character. Yeah. Well, as you know, vampire films are sort of a dime a dozen these days. What did you think you could add to the genre with this film that was fresh and exciting? Well, I knew I could add some new shit we hadn't seen before. Yeah. And that would be fun. And I knew that I could weave in some sort of tributes to, to the vampire films that I think were really, really uh, successful at sort of progressing the genre or doing new fun things with it. So I knew I could do those two things, but you know, at the core of this movie, it's, it's using the vampire element as an allegory. Yeah. And that's sort of something that I just do with all of my films. It's like, yeah, it's a genre film, but it's using the genre to talk about something else. And I think, you know, I just had a real clear vision on what this, what this movie was actually about and was able to thread in those other elements, not at the expense of the, the, the core to, the, to what the movie is. Um, Maybe somebody else could have done it as well. I would have been excited to see it, but it was a lot of fun making it. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned about the vampire movies that you, you know, grew up loving. So to me, the vampire in this film certainly takes me back to Barlow from Salem's Lot, at least in terms of its aesthetic. So, and I'm curious, 
what was the decision behind letting us see so much of the vampire? And was there ever a point during the production where that wasn't on the table? Well, part of it was in reaction to classic alt vampire movies that had sort of shied away from the more traditional look because they were doing something new with it. You know, Ava Farrar's The Addiction or Fessenden's Habit, uh, even A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. You know, there's in the alt vampire genre, you're playing against the stereotypical and you're trying to find a, a way to update it. In this, because we decided to make the, the master character a female, we were already doing something different. And I felt like we had a luxury that we could go back to a more classic design and yet still feel fresh. Yeah. Uh, and that would allow us to do two things at once. We could do something new, you know, and, and continue making a feminist horror film, but we could also call back fucking Klaus Kinski and, and Herzog's Nosferatu and, and, you know, the Salem's Lot design and do something that did both. So, you know, it's a mix of old and a, and a mix of new and you, you hopefully it comes out into something uh, that feels original. Yeah, well, you just answered one of my questions watching the movie, which was I couldn't pinpoint whether the vampire was a male or a female. So in my mind, it was just this androgynous character. Um, yeah. But but so in your mind, it's a female. It is absolutely a female. Okay. And, um, yeah, I think you know we could have hit that hit that bell harder. Uh, no, I think it was fine. The I think it was fine the way you rung it. Well, thank you. But yeah, that was the plan. You know, it was it was one of those things where this for Anne, the main character in the movie, it was important that the the decision was not between her husband and another male suitor. Yeah. You know, her her transformation in that movie is about her choosing herself, choosing her desires, her wants, her needs. And and so having the master who who, who gives her this opportunity not be saying, hey, come live with me forever and be my, you know, partner up with me was the sort of, it seemed to help clarify what the movie was actually about. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Bonnie Aarons who uh, plays the master, you know, I tell this story, she asks, she's like, how, how should I play it? Should I be like a, you know, a couple hundred year old, you know, from Eastern Europe? And I was like, no, no, no. You got to play it like a rich divorcee who's living down in Palm Beach, like drinking <laughs> cocktails. And it's like, sweetheart, what the hell are you doing? Let's go have fun. And she just looked at me and I was like, no, 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 you'll get it. Watch Absolutely Fabulous. Like, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's great. Um, and, you know, Bonnie's so iconic in anything she does. So this is just one more role in her long list of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. And, and, you know, because we wanted to do that classic design, we needed an actor who could perform through those layers of makeup. Yeah. You know, and that's something that not everybody can do. They can get lost in the design. And she's got such striking features and such a strong personality that it, it reads through the latex. Yeah. Well, and speaking of uh, sort of the those effects uh you know it, this has got some amazing practical gore effects throughout the film i'm curious just how much blood was spilled and talk to us about the way you go about implementing and shooting those practical effects yeah uh 
I'd have to look up on Twitter that the special effects team autopsy effects actually have the exact amount of blood we used. Uh-huh. I just think in terms of more, yeah, and a lot, and and for me, this is a movie about rediscovering your lust for life, and so I wanted the vampires to have a giddy and a gleefulness to their attacks. We've seen the sensual little bites on the necks, and I was like, no, no, these these vampires are like when a dog gets a garden hose and is playing with that and is just having the very best time of its life. That's what we're doing here. And then it was up to Marcus to sort of design how those effects would be pulled off. And it's basically just getting different pumps and reversing the motors on them so that they can project uh, a high volume of liquid for the duration we need. How we shoot them is, you know, I mean, on these low budget shows, you don't have the time for resets, really. You've just got to come up with a plan, test it a couple of times, and then just hop on the bowl and hope you hold on for the duration. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, all of the effects in the film are fantastic. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that I can identify as a splatter film to some degree. So I, li- I like your mentality to just say more and more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there, there was an attention with this that to sort of not just honor Barbara as an actress, but also call back some of the movies that put her on the map. You know, that yeah. 80s style of horror that was bigger and brighter, funnier than a lot of what we see now. And, and don't, I, I love modern horror, but there's a, there's a gonzo aspect to those movies that she made back in the day that I definitely wanted to have in this. This is a Barbara Crampton movie. Let's honor the legacy as well as do something new with it. And it does very much feel like sort of, it, it feels like both sort of a culmination of her career to some degree, but it also feels like a return to form because lately we haven't seen her in those kinds of films as much. She's been great in everything she's been in, but she, you know, it's been more of, like I said, those supporting roles. And this is kind of like embracing, you know, the Barbara Crampton of the 1980s that so many people sort of grew up loving. Yeah, it's a love letter. Like 100%, and, and, and I think I said it earlier, but like, my entire goal with this movie was to honor her. Yeah. And give her something that, you know, a stage that she could just shine on because that's, that's what they deserve. Actors who are really, really talented and of a certain age, they deserve room to show what they can do instead of just um, come in for, you know, a couple of days, like a cameo or something. And, and you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm overly simplifying it right now, but you know, it was yeah. important to be like, let's show that these these actors can rock and yeah. get up there and just solo all over the stage. Well, so we mentioned a couple earlier, but this podcast is sort of all about films and films that inspire them. So I'm curious, what were some of the other horror films that sort of inspired you during this? And were there any films that you were like, okay, everybody watch these films? <laughs> well, Again, I'm so worried about coming across like a pretentious dipshit. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, we watched the horror films, but, you know, trying to bring in the, the, the DNA of something else to give our horror film a slightly different feel. So the big reference points that I think every, it took people time to wrap their heads around was uh, Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence, yeah. um, uh, Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, um, uh, an unmarried woman, uh, you know, those sort of like 
movies about a woman in the second stage of her life making some pretty pretty big changes. The trick of bringing those aesthetics and that rhythm and that uh, uh, sort of pace into a genre film was the thing that I thought people needed to watch. It's like, you know, this is how we're dressing this character. This is how we're shooting these scenes. This is how we're going to get more naturalistic performances, how we're going to cover this stuff. All of that is a completely different language than traditional horror film, uh, filmmaking language. On the, on the horror film side, you know, the addiction is a huge influence. Um, Daughters of Darkness, uh, yeah. Herzog's Nosferatu, which just has such absurdity to it. And, and that's what this is. It's like, hey, we're going to take this small town relationship drama and just jam a vampire into it and see what happens. Um, yeah, stuff like that. I mean, Ganja and Hess, yeah. which I took a lot of just sort of, you can do so much with this subgenre. Uh, and there's a lot of great films out there that, that sort of we took a bit of inspiration from. Yeah. What has it been like getting a film finished and released during COVID? There's a lot of Google spreadsheets and a lot of clarification on what you mean by increments <laughs> <laughs> and, and having to come up with more and more descriptive increments to try to help calibrate somebody into an adjustment they're making, you know, a couple thousand miles away or a couple hundred miles away, wherever, um, you know, it's, it's not ideal. I mean, you can do it thanks to technology but it's an extra hurdle in fine tuning. It's much harder to fine tune if, via Google spreadsheets instead of in person in the room where you can make the adjustments together. Uh, on the plus side, you know, I spent the first five months of the pandemic cutting the movie here in my house. So I didn't really suffer the same sort of, um, uh, you know, out of body experience that most people did because I was just staring at my monitor. But, you know, it's definitely, it's opened us up to learning how to navigate a situation like this, but I hope other people don't have to deal with it. I will say on the, on the development side, on the creative side, I think it's gonna pay dividends for people. I think there's gonna be a lot of movies coming out that people wrote in, in lockdown where they didn't have the pressure to be in production or, or doing something else. And I think we're gonna see some interesting movies come out of just having a bit of breathing room to really work on the material. Yeah. Well, what's next for you? I mean, can, can we expect you uh, in a produ producerial role uh, more often or are you planning yourself firmly behind the director's chair at this point? I'm, I'm doing both. I, you know, there's, there's, Movies that if I can help somebody make their movie and it doesn't, I'm not going to get in the way in my own movies and my own focus on writing and directing, uh, those movies aren't going to get in the way, then I'm all for it. So there's a couple that, you know, I, I, the way I say it is, I'm not going to be in the driver's seat on this, but I'll ride shotgun and read the map and, and help you get where you want to go. Uh, and then on my own stuff yeah writing directing we're going out right now to cast on on the next one and we'll see what happens and so uh would you say are there any are there any big horror franchises that you're just i'm just curious that you're dying to seek your sink your teeth into pun intended 
I think both as a producer and as, as a writer director, the fun is always in finding uh, a personal way, personal path into whatever project somebody else wants to make. Sure. So there's, I would be up for any movie because I think if you, you think hard enough, you go for enough jogs and you drink enough bourbon, you can find a pretty <laughs> original take on it. Um, so, you know, some of the ones that I've joked about simply because it seems like, hey, nobody else has claimed them is, I'd love uh, Stephen King's The Dead Zone set in yeah. Trump's America. You know, I would uh, I'd take a crack at fucking anything Hellraiser related. Um, yeah. There's a film Night School that came out in the 80s. It was the <laughs> first movie that terrorized me. And man, to get into that world would be great. But anything, basically, you know, I just want to make really intense, weird, fun horror. And uh, if anybody else out there who has money and means and is looking for some madman to get involved in the process, I'm here. You're their madman. Yeah, uh, respectful, uh, reliable, uh, uh, bondable madman. Yes. <laughs> and I think you know, be you know, now that you're shifting sort of more into directing, I think all of that sort of pro- producerial work has got to come in handy. Yeah, it's it's it helps you from a starting point. You can sort of see the field differently, and you can write with sort of factors in mind that maybe if you hadn't been uh, on in the production world, you might not know. So it's much easier to, to know how to scale the gags, how to scale the cast, number of locations. It's much easier to guide your creative process knowing uh, the sort of budget model that you're trying to work within. Um, so yeah, although, you know, to be honest, I'm trying to think less as a producer. I want to start thinking more like a director who just is like, no, can't be done without this. Can't be done without that. You know, I need so- a technical brain. So at this point, let's say you're looking at a script and you see a scene that involves children, animals, pyrotechnics, and fight choreography. Are you thinking more in your producerial brain and saying, we need to cut some of this out? Or are you thinking as a director and thinking, oh, this could be fun? (laughs) It's actually a hybrid where I think of it as a producer and I go, how can I get this done? I mean, both both on the third floor and Jacob's wife, we got dogs, rats, kids practical effects destroying an actual location like all that stuff was from the producer's perspective of like okay how do we do this in this script and and you know coming up with okay well we can buy a second sink and we can do this and i found a person who raised rats in mississippi for pet stores and that was our rat wrangler you know you it's it's basically using your producer head to think how you can do it for the lack of money you have i have to appreciate any film that requires a rat wrangler yes i I do too and it's another thing that had been missing from modern vampire films probably because it's a pain in the ass are are rats would you say are rats intelligent animals do they follow direction well well we shot when it was cold and they were the only ones who were like fuck this and just, you know, we got what we got and then they were done working. The rest of us just kept on putting more layers. Wow. <laughs> well, Jacob's Wife is currently available. Uh, you're playing, you're, you've got a theatrical run too, or is it just VOD? Yeah, yeah. Th- theaters where it's safe, drive-ins where they're open, and VOD everywhere, April 16th. 
Fantastic. Well, Travis, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. And I really appreciate it. Always good to, uh, good to hear from you. And until the yeah. next one. Hell yeah. Love the film and can't wait for people to experience that bonkerness. So thank you so much. <laughs> And that's our show. If you like what we're doing here on Movies with Gravy, the fastest, easiest, most awesome way to support us is via Patreon. You can do so at the $1, $5, $10, or $25 level, and you get all sorts of awesome perks, including weekly Patreon-exclusive mini-reviews, special interviews, early access to bonus content, and voting power to choose some of the films we discuss on the show. Visit patreon.com slash movieswithgravy and sign up and help keep us doing what we're having an amazing time doing. That's patreon.com slash movieswithgravy. And make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other folks know you like us. You can follow us across the socials at Movies with Gravy, and we hope you do. Movies with Gravy was conceived of, produced by, and hosted by me, Billy Ray Bruton, and the theme song is Country Roses by Flannery Miles and me, Billy Ray Bruton. And remember, movies are great, but they're better with gravy. Y'all come back now, you hear? Country roses, blessed songs, mommy's here, daddy's gone.